As the title suggests, today we are going to be discussing what I believe is the greatest issue facing our society today for all people. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture. It is an honor to have you here tuning in today as we explore what it looks like together to have really important, crucially important conversations about all things politics, culture, and faith with the goal of exuding truth and love in our discourse. We have a ton to cover today, and I want to make sure that we get to all of it. So I'm going to jump right in, and I want to start this episode by giving a little bit of a current events update. There's a lot of important things taking place uh, legislatively, judicially, excuse me, in our country right now. One of the major hot topics is uh, Monday, the Supreme Court voted in a 6-3 decision to expand Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to include um, gender expression and sexual preference as reasons in which an employer cannot discriminate or hire or fire. So basically, this the Title VII used to just include uh, sex and race. So an employer could not fire somebody based on whether they're male or female. They couldn't fire them based on their color of their skin. Uh, it was an excellent uh, decision, obviously. But what happened on Monday was that the Supreme Court expanded that to say that if somebody's homosexual, you also can't fire them on the basis of their homosexuality. If somebody uh, identifies as a transgendered person, you can't uh, hire, or excuse me, you can't fire somebody based on that gender expression. So while the LGBTQ plus community is uh, excited and celebrating this as a victory, there's something really important that we as Christians should pay attention to, because this has major ramifications for any organizations that don't believe in this progressive view of sexuality and gender identity. So for any of you that believe uh, traditional biology and God's design for sexuality, that people were created male and female, and that people were created to, to live in heterosexual relationships with one another. If you are a pastor of a church and you desire to hire within that biological and theological framework, and somebody on your staff were to say, well, I feel completely different, and I'm deciding I'm going to switch genders or whatever it might be, you're no longer allowed to take action on that. You're no longer allowed to say, hey, maybe this isn't the position for you. So this is massive because this will trickle down and dictate how churches and religious organizations and nonprofits respond to these sorts of things. It's an incredibly oppressive uh, Supreme Court ruling to communities of faith, and it's something that we should really pay attention to. Again, that was a 6-3 decision. So important there. We're going to get into that a lot more. Um, in the coming episodes, we're going to talk about uh, gender and sexuality and all these different important topics. But it's, it's, it's crucial that we pay attention to what took place on Monday as kind of a framework of where we currently are in our society, that churches are now and religious organizations are now held to the standard as well, aside from companies and corporations and all these different things. So that's first thing. Second thing, uh, on Tuesday, today, Trump will be releasing an executive order on uh, a few different points of police reform. So we're going to be looking out for that, and that's something that we'll cover in future episodes. Uh, the president has revealed that that's going to be a priority moving forward, and so we'll, we'll, it's yet to see kind of what the details of that executive order have in store, but that's something that we'll cover moving forward. 
So last week I covered the politicization of race and how when race and these racial issues are weaponized in a political manner toward opposing ideologies, it creates uh, this, this culture of focusing on the wrong targets where we start to make racial issues more about different political talking points than actually shooting for the real, aiming for the real targets of what causes devaluing of life in our society across the board. And so this will obviously lead to shooting for the wrong solutions. When we, when we are aiming for the wrong targets, we'll also enact and propose the wrong solutions. So this week we have seen uh, cancel culture out and about more than ever. And if you don't know what cancel culture is, it's basically a little phrase that's used to describe this current movement within our culture to where if anything is, uh, has any sort of historical blemishes or um, has any imperfections in it, if anybody has said anything wrong, if they have acted in a way that's offended anyone else any time in the past, they should be canceled or removed from TV or stripped of their platform, whatever it might be. And so this week, some of these proposed solutions to fight racism have included uh, erasing Gone with the Wind, which this is one I found very interesting because the Gone with the Wind included uh, the first ever Academy Award, first ever Oscar given to an African-American woman, Hattie McDaniel, played Mammy in Gone with the Wind. She won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. This was a monumental day for, uh, for African-American women because it was the first time that anybody of her color had won this award before. But it's, it depicts the kind of antebellum South, and so it's, it's deemed as racist and no longer acceptable to be played anywhere. Paw Patrol, the childhood show about the police officer dogs, is stripped of its position. New York Times wrote an article about it. Now, I don't think they'll give into it, but New York Times wrote an article about it. It's been a legitimized movement that let's, let's take Paw Patrol out of uh, any sort of platform because it teaches kids that police officers could actually be good. So let's get rid of that. This one also confused me. We saw Winston Churchill, a statue of him in England, defaced with graffiti and the words racist all over him. Winston Churchill was a lot of things, but he, it, it's hard to argue that he was a racist. He was one of the key figures that actually stomped out racism, anti-Semitism, fascism in Europe. If it wasn't for Winston Churchill, England would not be the same country it is today. The UK would not be uh, the free place that it is. And arguably, you could say without Winston Churchill, the world would look very different. Hitler likely would have gotten away with a lot more had Winston Churchill not been on the scene. He was a lot of things. He was a complicated man, and he was absolutely not free of imperfection. He had plenty of faults. But to deface this statue and to call him a racist and try to erase him from the history books, it makes no sense. It's not a good solution. Also, last week, two black women in New York City were handcuffed and cited while praying outside of a Planned Parenthood. The same week of the George Floyd protests, two black women are outside Planned Parenthood, they're praying together, and they're meeting with women, and they're counseling them, and the New York uh, police officers arrested them for violating Bill de Blasio's uh, social distancing orders. Meanwhile, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people looting stores, stealing Nikes, burning buildings to the ground, burning affordable housing complexes to the ground. You have celebrities that are actually posting bail for people that are rioting. I mean, it's wild. But then these two women that are innocently praying in front of a Planned Parenthood are arrested. So cancel culture came for them. We've seen Church of the Highlands, one of the largest megachurches in the United States, with an amazing pastor who I love dearly, named Chris Hodges, who liked a few posts on Instagram 
of a notable conservative figure named Charlie Kirk, and the city of Birmingham responded by basically exclaiming that this man, this pastor, is who has served this community diligently for years is now a racist because he liked a few Instagram posts, and therefore they removed, the, the city of Birmingham removed uh, options for renewing leases for all these different buildings that Church of the Highlands occupied, these public schools and different city buildings, and Church of the Highlands has been stripped of their relationship with the city seemingly overnight. When if you're from Birmingham, and actually a lot of my listeners are, and hello all Birmingham friends, you know how much of a blessing Church of the Highlands has been to the city of Birmingham for people of all uh, colors and backgrounds of all different communities throughout that city. It's tragic, but cancel culture came from him. This one is also really confusing. There was a statue in Philadelphia where protesters defaced the statue of an abolitionist named Matthias Baldwin. Matthias Baldwin, he created one of the largest locomotive manufacturing firms in his time. He was an outspoken critic against slavery during the early 1800s. He argued for the rights of African Americans to vote, and he founded a school in the city for black children. His statue's been around since 1906. He was an abolitionist. He stood in opposition to slavery. He was a hero for the black community, and yet protesters are defacing his statue, destroying his legacy. None of it makes any sense. And then obviously kind of the most large-scale cancel culture has come after the police. We've heard insane demands made of our local officials to strip the police of basically any authority they have. When again, like I mentioned last week, every statistic in the books will show you that the more police presence in a city, the safer that it is. There have been countless lives of color, of all colors, saved and protected by men and women that serve in blue. Does not mean that the police force is free of racism across the board. Of course, there are bad cops. But to propose these sweeping revolutionary moves toward the very people that risk their lives for not a ton of pay to keep us safe has been mind-boggling. So these are all these different, again, I could go on for a lot longer, but these are all these different options that have been proposed as solutions, that if we just cancel all these things, if we just erase history, if we just take down all these statues, if we just cancel all these movies, if we just strip any pastor that's ever liked a few Instagram posts of someone I don't agree with, then maybe racism will be gone. It's insanity, and it doesn't work. All it does is create this further divide where people are like, wait a second, this just doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like the right moves to make. How is this helping? Here's one solution, and this is kind of leading us to where we're going with our topic today. Here's one solution that the media uh, has not proposed, and yet this is a solution that would likely do the most good to combat racism in our society. While culture and media and kind of the progressive revolutionary force within our country has desired to defund nearly everything and start from scratch, one organization they haven't mentioned is Planned Parenthood. And again, as the title of this episode would suggest today, we're going to talk about abortion. We're going to talk about the racist origins of Planned Parenthood in the context of the issues that we're currently facing. They haven't proposed this, but I'm going to today. I'm going to propose that we're going to defund Planned Parenthood. Because I believe that uh, the best step to protect people of all colors is to start from the moment of conception and to create a culture where that's prioritized. Life is prioritized from the very beginning. So before we get into abortion, I want to say a few things. This is a sensitive topic, and I recognize that. Some of you that are listening, you may have had some experiences that as we talk about this topic, it, it just hits close to the bone. And maybe there are some of you who have made mistakes and uh, have had friends that have made mistakes or whatever it might be. And this topic's just a tough one to talk through. I understand and I hear you and I want to be sensitive to that. 
And at the end of this, I'm going to give some resources actually as sort of next steps of how you can get more information on the things we're going to be talking about, as well as how we can actually uh, make positive change in our society and stand up for children of all colors from the very first moment of life. But I do want to address that, that this is a tough topic for some people. And know that I'm, I am doing my best to go about this sensitively and with that in mind. That being said, I, I can't refrain from talking about it. I have to be honest. Because again, I believe this is the greatest issue, issue facing our time. Here's why. I think we as people need to make a decision. We have to say, and this is my challenge to all of you that are listening right now. Do you believe that a fetus in the mother's womb is alive? Do you believe that it's a life? Because if you believe that it's a life, it should mean everything. It should be the thing that we are focusing on more than anything because there are thousands of lives literally in our country being lost every day to this. A practical comparable example is thinking about this in light of other historical atrocities that have taken place. So, for example, in in 1940s Germany, the world wasn't standing around and saying, well, we know the Holocaust is happening, we know there's extermination camps taking place, but I don't know, there's all these other issues, so we'll just focus on those more. And we won't really talk about it, we won't really focus on the Holocaust much, we'll kind of keep quiet. Six million people died in the Holocaust. 60 million people since 1973 have died because of abortion, since Roe v. Wade. 60 million in the United States. So we are witnessing and have been for the past few decades what I believe to be a genocide. And so for us to not talk about this, if I believe it's a life, that means I also have to believe that there have been 60 million of those lives lost since 1973. If I believe that a 13-week-old baby with all of its special characteristics already, which we'll talk about in a second, is alive and well and growing and developing, and I stay silent about it, and I focus on maybe these other issues over here, and I, and I neglect to talk about this, maybe because of fear of uh, social pressure or the uncomfortability of the conversation or any confusion around it, I, I'm staying silent about an atrocity taking place before my very eyes. The thousands of people. It's, abortion is the number one cause of death across people of all colors. 3,000 abortions a day. Again, 60 million since 1973. So why do I believe it's a life? As we start talking about abortion, um, this is an issue that's really near and dear to me. Obviously, for the reasons I just shared, I do believe it's the most pressing issue of our time because I think even deeper than just the, the wanting the babies to live and wanting families to be whole and restored, I I also think it's a deeper philosophical issue where we as a culture, what does it say about any progress we can make as a culture if we don't value life from the very first moment that life's on the scene? So I believe that babies in the womb are alive and well in a stage of fetal development, literally from the moment of conception. So here's an overview of the process of fetal development, literally from the moment of conception. And I want to I be very scientific on this. This is something that often, sadly, the, the issue of abortion gets divided into Christians and non-Christians, when in reality, uh, there are many people of all different faiths and faith backgrounds that believe in the pro-life cause because it's scientifically clear that from this first moment of conception that a life is a life that is to be protected and celebrated. So we're going to start. From the moment of conception, did you know that a baby already has eye color, hair color, gender, and their DNA established? 
At 14 days, the mother's menstrual period is suppressed by her child's chemical signals, the signs of life. At three weeks, the heart of the baby human is in the advanced stages of formation. Her eyes begin to form, her brain, spinal column, and nervous system are virtually complete. A day later, at 22 days, the preborn baby's heart begins to beat for the first time. At six weeks, the baby's heart energy output is an incredible 20% of an adult's already. The cartilage skeleton is completely formed, and ossification into bone begins. The baby's brain coordinates voluntary movement of muscles and in the involuntary movement of organs. Reflex responses are present. The baby's mother misses her second menstrual period. At 43 days, the preborn baby's brain waves can be recorded. At seven weeks, the lips of the baby human are sensitive to touch, and her ears resemble her family's pattern, which I think is so cool. The first fully developed neurons appear on the top of her spinal cord, beginning construction of the brainstem. This portion of the brain regulates vital functions such as breathing, heartbeat, and blood pressure. At eight weeks, the preborn baby is about an inch and a half long, inch to an inch and a half long, and one-thirtieth an ounce in weight. All organs are present, complete, and functioning except for the lungs. The stomach produces digestive juices, liver makes blood cells, kidneys are functioning, taste buds are forming, and her unique fingerprints are being engraved. Her eyelids and the palms of her hands are sensitive to touch. Of the 45 total generations of cell replication that will take place by mature adulthood, fully two-thirds have already taken place in the first eight weeks. At nine weeks, the preborn baby can bend her fingers around an object placed in her palm. Her fingernails are forming and she sucks her thumbs. At 10 weeks, all sections of the preborn baby's body are sensitive to touch. She can swallow, squint, frown, and pucker up her brow. If her palm is stroked, she'll make a tight fist. The preborn child makes all facial expressions, including a smile. She's now breathing amniotic fluid steadily and will continue to do so until birth. Taste buds are working well. She'll drink more amniotic fluid if it's artificially sweetened and less if it's given a bitter taste. It's amazing. They're already building taste preferences. At 12 weeks, vigorous activity shows the distinct personality of the baby human. Some babies hiccup constantly. Others cry. The baby can kick, turn over, curl, fan toes, make a fist, etc. At 13 weeks, the preborn child's facial expressions resemble those of her parents. Her movements are vigorous and graceful. Vocal cords are present. And in rare cases, when air enters the uterus temporarily, babies have been heard crying. The sex of the baby can be determined by doctors, and she can also now hear. Two more things I want to say. At five months, the preborn baby human has formed her own unique sleeping habits. She responds to sounds that are of frequencies that exceed adults' audible range. She may be soothed to sleep by gentle music. And at six months, most babies are viable at this point, can live outside the womb. Eyelashes appear, the baby's weight's about 22 ounces, and her height's about 9 inches. To give you a little parameter on where we currently are in our nation, even the most extreme anti-abortion states, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, abortion is still legal up to 20 weeks. So nearly everything I told you can happen, and yet abortion still legally take place. It's heartbreaking. So I believe wholeheartedly that the science and the data is clear, and there are more and more people that are coming to this agreement, respected professionals in the medical community, that at the moment of conception, life is formed. Something has DNA and is alive and already has so much of the characteristics of its humanhood mapped from even that first moment. That life deserves to be protected. Now I want to talk a little bit about how the, the issue of race gets involved in this. Because the reality is, today, more than 28% of all black pregnancies end in induced abortion. It's a human rights crisis. 
Abortion is the number one killer of black lives in the United States. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Pre Prevention, so the CDC, abortion kills more black people each year than HIV, homicide, diabetes, accidents, cancer, and heart disease combined. In 2014, African-American women comprised 13.3% of the U.S. population, but black women had 36% of all abortions. And so if we want to support communities of color, we've got to do so from the very beginning. Again, communities of all color. But in the light of the current uh, crisis that we're facing and the conversations we're having amidst culture, I think it's important to focus on the issue of race in relation to communities of uh, black and brown communities, communities of color. So I want to talk a little bit about Planned Parenthood and ask the question, why are we not pushing hard to cancel this organization, to defund this organization? Did you know that from the beginning, Planned Parenthood has been a racist organization. Their founder was a woman named Margaret Sanger. She was a notable eugenicist. So what is uh, eugenics? The Merriam-Webster dic Dictionary uh, defines eugenics as the practice or advocacy of controlled selective breeding of human populations as by sterilization, abortion, birth control, et cetera, to improve the population's genetic composition. So Margaret Sanger had a belief that some people deserve to live and other people deserve to die. And that a big push for the birth control movement and the movement for abortion, this is just the truth here, she wrote it in her own words, we'll go into that in a second, was to eliminate certain communities and to limit the production of humans that looked a certain way or struggled with certain things. Uh, she was very against the procreation of babies with different mental disabilities, which was a Hitler view. That was his goal as well. So I just want to go through a couple quotes from Margaret Sanger. And I want to share these as hopefully shedding a light on the reality of the influential opinions that framed this organization that now culture parades as this sort of beacon of human rights and women's rights. When in reality, the very tenets they've stood for and still do today to a high regard, which I'll go over as well, stand directly opposed to any sort of human rights. So from the pivot of civilization... Margaret says, we are paying for and even submitting to the dictates of an ever-increasing, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. From Birth Control and Racial Betterment, she writes, before eugenists and others who are laboring for racial betterment can succeed, they must first clear the way for birth control. Like the advocates of birth control, the eugenists, for instance, are seeking to assist the race toward the elimination of the unfit. Both are seeking a single end, but they lay emphasis upon different methods. From a plan for peace, the government should give certain dysgenic groups in our population their choice of segregation or sterilization. The eugenic value of birth control propaganda. She said, today eugenics is suggested by the most diverse minds as the most adequate and thorough avenue in the solution of racial, political, and social problems. She wrote some moral aspects of eugenics in 1920. Did you know that Margaret Sanger also spoke at a KKK rally in 1928? She wrote about it. It's spoken of heavily in an autobiography of hers. She was also invited to 12 other KKK rallies, and we don't have data to back up or support that she went and spoke at those, but it's been loosely associated that she never declined an invitation at these different KKK rallies. This was her, a large portion of her uh, fan base that she was trying to attract to get on board with her eugenics agenda. So those were the foundational beliefs of this organization that is so often talked about today that receives literally billions of dollars in taxpayer funding. Now, that's the past, and that's Margaret Sanger in the past, and obviously she's, she has since passed. But 
the remnants of those foundational principles still survive today. And that's where a lot of you may be like, whoa, are you saying that Planned Parenthood today is still racist? Yes, I am. Here's why. Because today, the black abortion rates are through the roof, higher than any other demographic. They make up that 36% of all abortions that take place. In New York City, a black child has a better chance of being aborted than born. It's Planned Parenthood's number one objective. They may say it's birth control and all these different things. It's not. They're money maker. You can check. Every statistic will back this up. The Guttmacher Institute is the one that they pull. They literally use it as another arm to calculate all their data and their analytics year after year. And they make it very clear that abortion is the bulk of their business. It's not like Planned Parenthood has denounced Margaret Sanger and said, yes, we recognize she was a racist. We know, we spoke, we know she spoke for KKK rallies, but now we're standing against her. That's not the case. Since 1966, Planned Parenthood has continued to hand out the Margaret Sanger Award to honor the legacy of its founder. In 2009, Hillary Clinton received the award, and she said during her acceptance, and I quote, it was a great privilege when I was told that I would receive this award. I admire Margaret Sanger enormously. I'm really in awe of her. There are a lot of lessons we can learn from her life, from the causes she launched and fought for and sacrificed for so greatly. That was 2016 presidential nominee for the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton. Those were her words, idolizing Margaret Singer. There's an amazing organization called Live Action. I highly recommend you checking out uh, their website and their social media pages. They do beautiful work. And one of the big goals of their organization is to expose the realities of Planned Parenthood and other abortion clinics. And they want people, the general public, to feel informed about what's really taking place behind closed doors in these different organizations, in these different entities. And there were two famous phone calls of theirs where they called uh, an abortion clinic, a Planned Parenthood of Idaho and a Planned Parenthood of New Mexico. And these are just two of many calls they've done, but they had a man call in and request that donations from him would be earmarked specifically for abortions taking place for kids of color. So he had this whole script that he read out, and we have the recording of the phone calls. You can find those on Live Action's website, where uh, basically he asks, hey, I'd like less black children on the earth. Can I donate uh, funds? I don't want my kids to face competitions in sports and all these different things. And he was acting this role. I want these funds to be earmarked specifically to go to African-American children. And what do you know? Both Planned Parenthoods said, absolutely, we can do that. We can, we can definitely designate your gift to affect people of color. That's what's taking place at Planned Parenthood. So why are we as a culture not absolutely calling this out? Why are churches not standing up over the last few weeks and saying, you're right, racism does exist. So let's fight it from the very first moment of conception. Alveda King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s niece, has quoted saying abortion and racism are both symptoms of a fundamental human error. The error is thinking that when someone stands in the way of our wants, we can justify getting that person out of our lives. Abortion and racism stem from the same poisonous root, selfishness. So if I really want to support people of color, Alveda King clearly lays out, and she's done this publicly over, over the last few decades, it's been really amazing to watch, that if we're going to stand against racism, we have to do it from the moment of conception because this is statistically the largest threat to communities of color. So where do we go from here? Because far be it for me to 
give you this information, and hopefully it was eye-opening in a lot of ways and enlightening in a lot of ways. Far be it for me, though, to leave it there and not give really clear next steps for what do we do with this information, especially about a heavy topic such as what we covered today. I kind of want to break this down in a few little bullet points in closing. I want to say first that it's so important for us to educate ourselves that we do research on this topic because there are two conflicting messages in culture right now. One is abortion is something to be celebrated. We saw at the Golden Globes this year where an actress actually celebrated her abortion on stage with the live audience on national TV. There's that side of the aisle that's saying abortion is the way forward. It's, it's how we enact fully a woman's rights to choose and modern feminism. And this shows a total control that a woman has over her whole body. And children is really a choice that comes when it's convenient. And you get to choose when that happens. Now, I believe that view is very deceitful, and it's done in the name of women's health to purposely deceive. But we as Christians, this is when it's so important to hold the verses, like Isaiah 520, for example. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's Isaiah 520. We can't fall into this culture of confusion where things that are not good are called good, because the gospel view is that children from the moment of conception— and this is biologically supported, as we discovered, are worthy of being celebrated, protected, and cared for. Kids of all colors, of all backgrounds. The true gospel view of this is that the best way we confront racism, the best way that we protect life, we celebrate life, is do that from the very first moment life is present. The only way that we continue to discover that further and arm ourselves with facts and information needed to educate others on it is by educating ourselves first. Live action, organizations like this that I mentioned earlier are so phenomenal at doing just that, at giving really excellent user-friendly resources to help us understand the reality of the abortion industry, what really takes place from a medical perspective. They have a lot of medical experts, former abortionists, that actually will create content for them to give uh, viewers and listeners an understanding of what takes place and the tragedy of abortion and the reality that it's not a women's health issue at all. It's actually uh, an issue of taking human life. It is that, that bold, and, and live action does a good job of, of really giving people the facts and the reality around what's happening and arming us with truth so that we're able to uh, engage in society from a place of truth. So live action is one of many organizations that do that, but I highly recommend them. They're not advertising this or anything. I just really like them. They've changed my life, so I want to pass it on. Changed my wife's life as well. Second thing we can do is educate others. So parents, if you're out there and your children are young, it's so important to start talking about the value of life from moment of conception. That's what the faith perspective and the biological scientific perspective excuse me, supports. Because the world's going to teach them the opposite. The school system is going to teach them the opposite. Modern feminism is going to teach them the opposite. So for children to know, no, we in this family, I've learned from my parents, we value life everywhere it's found, especially in the places where it's most vulnerable, which as we've learned today, is the mother's womb. More people die there than any other realm of society. So for children to know that, it's so important. Educate others in our community. Ask your pastor hey, can we talk about this? Is there a way in which we can activate the church more in standing up against this atrocity? Because again, if you believe that this is a life, this should be everything. We're losing thousands a day. It's time to stand up. The third thing is we can activate. We can actually engage with local pro-life pregnancy resource centers that offer resources and education and support to women that are in crisis, that are in the middle of those tough scenarios and situations when legally they're given a choice. But these 
pro-life pregnancy resource centers come around them and help them see the reality of the choice that they're about to make and encourage them to choose a life-giving option for them and their child. There's public policy options we can take. There's steps we can take uh, legally within the government, our civic duty. We can actually vote in alignment with policies that directly affect uh, the issue of abortion. We can financially support these different organizations. We can donate to live actions and pregnancy resource centers and larger networks like CareNet, et cetera. We, we can actually put our money to it as well. Finally, we can pray. This is the most important thing we can do. We can pray. We can pray for life and a valuing of life to, prepare, to prevail, for truth to prevail. Here's why I'm hopeful. There's a CBS poll that was just released that showed that a majority of Americans uh, believe that we should completely restrict abortion or at least make it severely limited. A majority of Americans, 55%. That poll wasn't taken in just Christian communities. That is 55% of Americans. That's more than it was last year, substantially. It's more than it's been uh, in recent history. There's other positive steps being taken. Um, however you feel about President Trump, one thing is for sure is that he has been the most pro-life president in recent history. A reform on Title X last year actually stripped the federal funding from 900 different abortion clinics across the country last fall. It's amazing. Something worth celebrating. Finally, the reason I'm hopeful more than anything is because I believe that this is, this is the mission of Jesus. This is something that he is, uh, he is leading the way on. This isn't something that we're just having to stir up activation on. I believe that the, the priority of Jesus is to protect life, especially for those most vulnerable. And so we get to just follow his lead and trust that he'll give us divine wisdom and steps to take so that we can keep promoting life as well. So with that being said, I've said enough for today. I hope you've enjoyed this topic. I know it's been heavy at times, and thank you for sticking with me on it. And again, this is something that we'll continue to cover in the future. So if there's questions that you have, if there's things that you'd like a little more information on, things that I said, uh, please submit a question, a comment on my website. That's refiningpoliticsandculture.com. Speaking of questions, we're going to start our Q&A portion on Thursday. I've already received so many incredible questions, super insightful. I'm looking forward to digging more into those if you would like to submit a question, you can direct message me on Instagram, or you can uh, actually submit that inquiry on my website. So with that being said, we're going to come back on Thursday. I've got a really exciting topic uh, I'm looking forward to digging in that really blends uh, current events with some deeper philosophical stuff mixed with some very relevant topics for where we're going over the next few months. So tune back in on Thursday for that. Looking forward to speaking with you all. I'm grateful for this time. I'm honored that I had the opportunity to share it with you. And this has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.